Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car... Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. The children need to be able to see the museums and our great culture, not just the tourists that can afford to come. We have to make life more affordable for our own citizens. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. My guest this week is Jonathan Jackson son of the Reverend Jesse Jackson Sr., one of, I believe, 15 candidates vying to replace retiring First District Congressman Bobby Rush. Welcome, sir. Thank you so much. This is a storied congressional district that has had the longest run of African-American representation in the nation. Names like Oscar DePriest, Ralph Metcalf, Bill Dawson, Harold Washington, Bobby Rush. You want to pick up the mantle. Why? There's pain in this district, and I'm very familiar with it. I've been a lifelong resident of the 1st Congressional District. I went to elementary school at John J. Pershing. I went to high school at Whitney Young. I've uh, opened businesses in the south side in this district. Our, my father's national headquarters has been in this district, went to Northwestern, and I've seen the decline, the economic decay in the city. I've seen the crime go up. I've seen the health care disparity become exacerbated, and I've seen so many houses become foreclosed and lots become vacant and family and friends move out of the city and out of the region. I want to turn that tide around. Uh, Chicago should be more vibrant. We've got Houston's about to become larger than the city of Chicago. Toronto to the north has become larger than the city of Chicago. And it's because I believe of the lack of opportunity. That's enforcement of contract and compliance in large part for the African-American community and with women. And also because of the lack of uh, safety that is driving people out of the city. So that is a concern for me. And at the age of 56, I never wanted to uh, seek public office while my children were in school. I know the grind and how grueling it is on a personal level. And now that my children are out of the house, this opportunity after 30 years uh, opened up as of January 3rd. And with some urging and calling, I said, you know, let me put my head in the ring so I can make a difference. I know Washington. I have relationship with uh, congressional colleagues. I've done things in the Democratic Party, and I've supported a lot of candidates in the past. So I want to get on the field so I can make a difference. But uh, in all deference, sir, the things you mentioned that are wrong, it sounds more like a campaign for mayor. No, it needs federal help. When we talk about infrastructure, that's a federal program. Uh, Our grid system is bad. Um, In New York City, you can get one pass to go from the city to the suburb and around the uh, state. 
In Chicago, it's three systems, the PACE, the Metra, the CTA. That needs to have some sort of federal assistance. When we look at our train rail lines, how inaccessible the south suburbs are coming back to downtown and to the city. When we look at the city and the region's future growth and distribution centers and work, uh, we're going to need some sort of access to massive distribution. We have an intermodal system that is part of the Department of Transportation. When we look at housing, we've got the the nation's largest um, depository of housing in the county um, of any part of the nation. That's federal housing policy that can help jumpstart the uh, population growth back in our region, and that's county. So, and we talk about the hospitalization, the affordability, and accessibility. We do need to redo what we have in our general health care system. So I'm very clear that this is federal policy that makes the difference. But Congressman Rush is backing Karen Norrington-Reeves of the Cook County Workforce Development Organization. Alderman Pat Dowell, Mayor Lightfoot's handpicked budget chairman, made the quick switcheroo from her race for Illinois Secretary of State to this race when Rush announced his decision to retire. The field is crowded. How are you going to stand out? I've got a history of working in these communities. And um, it's a short-term sprint. As of today, it's less than 20 weeks. And one of the things I have as an asset is I've been with the families for those that have died because of gun violence. I understand their pain. I've spoken to it in the past. I've stood up against the privatization of schools and the school closures because of uh, persons that have tried to do chartering and tried to get more vouchers and other things. I'm a strong advocate for public education on the federal level on increasing the spending that we have on our pupils. We have to do workforce retraining. I've taught at the community colleges at Kennedy King College. I know the students and the gap they have in their life trying to get back to school and the programs that we should have in those schools. Um, So I'm very clear on what they should be doing. And I would like to be an advocate and also talk with other colleagues in the Congress to share with them my perspective as having been a business professor, as having open businesses in these neighborhoods, and understanding the real-time pain that people are going through, even with COVID. COVID is surging in many neighborhoods across the city of Chicago still, and the access of testing and tracing and accessibility to care, not just health insurance, but needing health care. How do we get more teachers? How do we get more people to become doctors? And what should be the federal government's plan to increase the amount of doctors? Uh, We shouldn't have to just simply ask people to come from abroad to service in our hospital system. We can create more doctors within our own country if we make school more affordable. So how would you do that then? Well, one thing is we've got to look at all four corners of the blanket. People need health care. People, uh, doctors need to make sure that their education is affordable. They can't come out of school with $250,000 in debt. We also need to make sure that the facilities in the states are are in a non-discriminatory way placing these facilities where people have access. Look at the curve. Look at where the pain is. These areas that are most acutely affected with COVID, with uh, trauma, with uh, hypertension, with diabetes, with um, glaucoma, We have a plan that we focus on generating uh, a special program to put a green light on medical access. You bring up a generation 
of new doctors. And that starts with all the wraparound services people need. If the child is testing and has the aptitude in order to become a doctor, we start putting programs to give them summer enrichment programs. We get counselors and teachers. We give them all the necessary things if they're first generation so they can get into the uh, into the medical school. We've seen this sort of cultural revolution happen in India where they pulled themselves up. We've seen this in, in a generation in other countries that had some of these legacy issues of, of race and disparity. These were government intentional plans to bring people up and we can do the same thing here. That would be appropriating the, proper, the appropriate amount of money in the Department of Education targeted to bringing people that have been excluded into the main system so they can be included. So what would you do? You'd recruit kids from a young age to become doctors, and then you would pay for their medical education with the provision that like, they have a certain amount of service time in their communities, kind of like what happens when a kid graduates from West Point or the Naval Academy? Same same program. We've seen this with the with the Peace Corps to let people go abroad. We've seen this with our veterans programs, persons that have served our country. They can come back and have um, college uh, assistance. That if we look at this as a part of our national defense, having health care so that we're not crippled by a disease that can be contained. Uh, yes, I think that would be a part of national defense, if you will. So in exchange for how many years of service in their inner city communities? Some of those details, I'd tell you, Fran, will have to be worked out. I would have to talk with other colleagues. Uh, this isn't an innovative idea. Other people have talked about this as well. And somewhere in between there, we would get the right number. And I don't know if it's three years, if it's five years, whatever it is to close the gap where they could do a period of time in service, very much like people going to the ROTC, get their college uh, subsidized, and then um, give something back to their country and then go on to um, have all the other fruits of our nation. There will be those who say that just because your name is Jackson doesn't mean you're ready. They might even resent it, you know, citing the nepotism that we've seen in Chicago politics forever. Heinz, Lipinski, Berrios, just families to name a few. Uh, why should the name Jackson be an asset and not another example of Chicago political nepotism? Um, the name Jackson could be synonymous with service. Um, I've never been in political office. I don't curry any political favor. The name Jackson, if it resounds with person, it's because of service. Uh, it's nothing that was bequeathed. It's not a, a dynasty. It's a, a legacy of service, if you will. It's going to the front line to make a difference. So this isn't one person passing on another seat. This isn't patronage. My father's not been a mayor. My father's not been a state senator or U.S. senator. It's none of that. This is really a break, if you will, from that path. This is, I've done private business. I've been a volunteer with my father's organization, the Rainbow Push Coalition. And I think that being in the platform and being in the halls of Congress, I can lend my voice. I look at the era that we're going through now, which is really alarming to me when the question of the right to vote is in the balance. When 21 states are passing laws uh, banning books, when I see that states are making it more difficult for persons to vote, when I see the uh, um, infant mortality numbers spiking across the nation, 
I would like to weigh in and share my voice and my ideas and bring the fight to the floor of the Congress. And also, uh, Congress people have to be educated. They have to be persuaded. And some of them, you have to hold hands one person at a time. I know I'm capable and qualified to do that. Your biggest assets, as my colleague Lynn Sweet pointed out, are your father, the Rainbow Push Coalition, and a potential national fundraising network. Your dad ran for president twice. What advice did he give you as you embark on this maiden voyage in Chicago politics? Well, first, let me disagree with what Ms. Sweet said. Um, that's her opinion. Um, I've taught in the community colleges. I've taught at Chicago State. I've gone to elementary school, so I've got a perspective that's separate. My father was raised and born in South Carolina, so I know Chicago. Um, I've also served a lot of people in the city of Chicago. Those are all great assets that my father and family have that I'm very proud of. But at 56 years old, I've earned some things as well. Uh, one of the things my father told me is that it's a blessing to be in service and that he thought I was eminently qualified at this point and uh, I could do a lot of good for the nation that he thought I'd be able to argue the case and that um, if I were willing to do so and put aside personal business interests and if this is the calling that I feel in my heart, uh, he wanted to support me 100% and said he was very proud of me. You said during your announcement that you've prepared for this your entire life, that you've traveled the world with your dad. You've seen greatness. You've been in the room where it happened, as they said in that wonderful show, Hamilton. What room and when? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, one, and I can't go into all of them, but I've seen my father stand on the right side of history when President uh, Nelson Mandela was called a terrorist. We were calling him a freedom fighter then. Um, our position didn't change. The nation changed. I remember my father went on to, uh, to Saddam Hussein when he was using persons as human shields. And I raised the money to sponsor the trip for him to go over there. We sat down with President Saddam Hussein to ask him to release those hostages and stop the escalation of war and the human shields. And we're successful in bringing back 400 persons uh, back to the United States. I mean, back to Germany, to France, to uh, the UK, those persons that were human shields. So I've seen diplomacy in action. And I oftentimes think about that day because um, President Saddam Hussein had told us at his green room in the palace, he says, America is coming in here. And America is but a baby amongst nations. He says, this is the Assyrian culture, it's 6,000 years old. America is barely 400 years old. Uh, who knows if they'll make it 1,000 years? He said, but I tell you this, it'll be easier for them to come in here than it will be for them to get out. And the reason I reflect upon that is now that has been a $6,000 error, a $6, a $6 trillion error, $6 trillion of poorly spent money in the wrong direction. We talk about the money the country needs now. Had my father's uh, leadership been heated and had others been more eager to seek diplomacy and not war, and had we been able to redirect $6 trillion, we could have fixed infrastructure across the nation, hospitalization, education. We could be in a totally different place having put peace and diplomacy first 
over uh, war and fighting. So those are just two examples. I've been with him when we met President Hafez Assad and Bashar Assad. I've seen him take those chances. Um, and he's told me that you'll have, uh, it's better to have dirty hands and a clean heart than it is to have clean hands with a dirty heart. So leadership has to be willing to uh, be castigated, be chastised, be criticized, but being willing to persevere and stand in the gap and do what's right, not necessarily what's popular. During your fiery and emotional speech declaring your candidacy, you also talked about the 300,000 Black residents who have left Chicago. You said you want to welcome them back home from Indiana, Michigan, Atlanta, Dallas, Houston, L.A., wherever they went. How do you plan to do that? What will it take? I would love to sit down um, after a victory with the Secretary of Hood, Marcia Fudge, and ask her what's on their agenda for housing and sit down with our Cook County Board President, uh, Ms. Tony Preckwinkle, and sit down with the um, state and local officials to talk with the developers to craft the plans on how do you turn that land back over so that persons have a green light. If it's waiving the fees on new construction, on what is the uh, work that the how what the uh, community colleges need to do on workforce development and training so we can have more glazers and plumbers and uh, contractors develop the generation of children that now can become contractors and laborers and have the desire to go back into their neighborhood. Many of the schools, for example, in the city have uh, lost those trade school programs. How do we uh, put those programs back into the school to assist the labor community um, far too often now we have a, a construction a construction worker shortage i don't think the long-term solution is having to import um, more persons from out of the country to do work at home we can raise and train and create those same talented workers right here but it's by design not by accident and i'd want to be purpose purposeful and making sure we can create jobs to fill the american workforce that we need for today and tomorrow but Chicago's unrelenting wave of gang violence is really behind so many of these departures. It has people living in fear. You talked about the need to improve public safety. You said if you don't have public safety, people will leave, and they have. How do you get that back? It's by leadership, um, by going into the community, touching those persons that have been afflicted, going to the teachers, asking them, where, the, where is this violence coming from? The teachers know. They know the children that have been traumatized. I saw there are 160,000 students now, minimum, uh, that are orphaned because of COVID. Uh, who's reaching out for, the, uh, for those children that are now orphaned? Uh, it's got to be intentional and in closing those gaps. We're putting too much burden on the school, thinking that the teacher can be the food program, the, uh, the counselor, the educator, uh, to be the test taker. No, the school is not failing. The community has failed, and people are blaming the school. I've been a teacher. The school is not failing. The community around the school is failing. So we have to have a broader perspective, not just look through a window, but open the door and see the whole picture, that, and then bring the resources to those communities in order to make them healthy again. 
The fight for voting rights. You talked about what your brother, former Congressman Jesse Jackson Jr. taught you. You call what's going on Jim Crow, all grown up, all over again. And you said that without voting rights, we don't have equal protection. What other lessons did you learn from what happened to Jesse Jr. and the corruption conviction of both him and his ex-wife, Sandy? That marked the very sad ending of a once very promising congressional career and landed your brother and his now ex-wife in prison. That must have been a very painful thing for you as his brother, for your dad, for your whole family. What did you learn from that? What do you glean from it? Well, my brother and I are 10 months apart in age, so we grew up extremely close. Um, I love my brother, and he ran into some challenges. He's paid his debt to society. He's a brilliant man. Um, He was a champion for his district. He didn't hurt his district. He hurt himself personally, and for that, he has the burden and the pain that he lives with. I saw both of my grandmothers have strokes as a result of the pain and embarrassment that they had felt, so it was something that we all felt deeply. And I also know that this has happened to other people in the past. Uh, I am impressed that he's come out. He's dedicated himself to to writing and continuing his scholarship. And they're the lessons that uh, um, you have to be careful of. And it's not where you fail, but it's where you slip. When he first started going wrong, I think uh, I wish I could have been closer to him physically in proximity. And I would have observed this. But we were all so busy in our individual lives at that time, raising family and children. I just wish I had been in closer proximity to him and I would have seen this happening. But um, it's human frailty. We can all have a a problem, but praise be to God, that chapter is behind him. Uh, He suffered then, he suffers now um, from having made those choices and the consequences. Um, And I wish him a bright, a bright future. He's got so much more to offer. Are you at all concerned that there will be voters who'll hearken back to your brother's corruption and say, hey, we've had enough of the Jacksons, that rivals may try to use this and say that's not a reason, you know, that's a reason not to elect Jonathan Jackson. What will your answer be if they try? I love my brother. But you're not your brother's keeper either, right? Well, theologically, I see that as a bit of a misplay on words. A keeper is a gatekeeper, a zookeeper, a jailkeeper. I'm my brother's brother, so I will forever love him and ever be by his side. And uh, for those persons that say that, it's, uh, you know, my family's problems and um, we've dealt with them and we're public. I wouldn't bring up your family's problems and everybody has them, so I wouldn't go down that path. And you hope that they don't either. You think that's below the belt? It's below my dignity. I can't say what others would do and how desperate that they may be or how hungry or thirsty they are for this, but I'll maintain my dignity at all times in this race. You talked about the need to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, but you also said that's not enough, not when childcare costs working parents more than $20 an hour. You said that is not math, that's arithmetic. So what should be done about that? Well, and this is why, as LBJ had discussed in some of his civil rights speeches and picking up all four corners of the blanket, 
It's just not enough to look at one problem individually. They're all tied in. We have to look at housing for the 21st century. People need to be near mass transit lines where transportation uh, moves at a rate of better than 20 uh, persons can be picked up and moved in less than 20 minutes. Mass transit. Mass transit is not profitable. It's subsidized all around the world. It's the link between welfare and work. You've oftentimes heard people say you are what you eat. That's in one part true, but more true is that you are where you live. Your access to transportation determines your access to getting to hospitalization, your access to getting to education, your access to getting to employment. So I'd like to see uh, plans that we can talk about where transit and housing and hospitalization are synced up where it becomes affordable, then we can address with uh, the, the needs of the family. So we know what healthy communities have. Look at any rich neighborhood. We need that modeled and blueprinted um, and those persons that have lower income. And it's a drain on the entire society when people cannot get to work. It doesn't help the, the business owner. It doesn't help the society and the community when there's gaps in time between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. for children that don't have access to organized recreation at park districts and other things where they can get some extra aftercare tutoring and mentoring and have federal jobs programs in the summertime where we can uh, make sure these children aren't going into delinquency because they don't have uh, enough to do, that we need to catch them on the front side of life and prepare them. The children need to be able to see the museums and our great culture, not just the tourists that can afford to come. We have to make life more affordable for our own citizens. In talking about crime and the tragically younger and younger ages of the perpetrators of crime, carjackings in particular, you talked about the fact that children are no different than they were generations ago, but that there are too many negative influences on our children, that they've become desensitized from playing 10,000 hours of Mortal Kombat and Grand Theft Auto. And you talked about the negative influences of the media. You talked about the video game manufacturers putting poison in our kids, as you put it. What can you as a congressman do about that? You know, there are things that um, I don't know. And, and there are things that I have seen. The solution for that, I am not altogether clear on. I want to talk with more of the experts, but I have seen the long-term uh, effects of this sort of bombardment that the children are getting, and we see this manifested in their behavior. I do believe in freedom of speech, and I want to expand it, but I also want to be careful that we don't target uh, juveniles that don't have fully developed brains where they're not desensitized to violence. Our children are becoming desensitized to violence. And we've seen this before with cigarette smoking, that you couldn't have uh, cartoon colored characters that could target children. We've seen this with uh, alcohol ads. We've seen what advertising can do. And I would like for us to take a closer look at what influences are creating uh, this behavior in the children is my main point. Like what is driving this new phenomenon of children at 13, 15, 
really with a 11, suicide. Eleven, even eleven, just this week, uh, the superintendent talked about an eleven-year-old who had committed and, multiple and, high, uh, carjackings. Right, and do I think that child is uh, uh, has a criminal gene? No. I think there are some environmental forces that are affecting that child. So I don't want to fix the blame. I want to fix the problem. What are we doing in a society that is uh, making that child? we had never heard of that in my generation. So something's happened. And I'm not blaming the child. I want to fix the problem because it's too widespread for it to be uh, an accident. You said the community college system where you came from should be a backbone to prepare kids for careers and trades and that it can't be a feeder system for children who don't know where else to go. Is that what they've become in city colleges? I mean, I remember the the college to careers programs that Mayor, Mayor Emanuel set up in each of the colleges. What's wrong with the colleges right now, city colleges? City colleges around the country are great. In general, Chicago has a separate problem in our community college. That's separate. And that's what is the problem in Chicago? Well, I served on the board for the state of Illinois under the Clinton administration for community colleges. First of all, there are elected boards in the city of Chicago, they're appointed boards. And I did not realize growing up that uh, those community colleges, if you go to small towns across the state where they're functioning very well, uh, they're elected, they have a president, they uh, are able to weigh in on the programs that the community wants. Ours is appointed, it's under one leadership, and one disastrous thing they did in Chicago on that is they said, Olive Harvey, you will be uh, transit-focused. Kennedy King, you're going to do something else. Malcolm X, you're going to do medical because you're near, you're near the medical school. That's not how the system is supposed to work. Each one of those schools are supposed to be totally independent with the elected board or president accountability, and the community says what they want in the college. So I was at Kennedy King College when they took the nursing program out of Kennedy King College and moved it over to Malcolm X. Well, now children on the southeast side that don't have access to transportation that found it accessible to go to um, Kennedy King now find it inaccessible to get to Chicago, to, to get to Malcolm X College. Uh, you should have nursing in all the schools if that's what the community in that region wants. I've gone to the hospital quite a few times this last year for my father and the medical care and that he and my mother needed. And I saw a generation of students that had become nurses that taught at uh, Kennedy King College. Well, now that the college program is closed, you're not going to see that pipeline of those students that came from Inglewood that has access to um, Kennedy King that wanted to become nurses that had access to transportation to their local community college. I'm talking neighborhood specific um, now started changing their majors. So it's too Before much. Before we let you go, sir, let me ask you this. If you don't make it in this crowded field, is it possible you might run for mayor? Is mayor Lightfoot vulnerable? Does she deserve to be reelected? I'm running for Congress. I've got 137 days. I'm focused on that. And I'm leading in the polls. I'm out front because of my work and service. I plan on staying there. And that's what I'm committed to, Fran. How much money will it take? Do you have any clue? I don't. Uh, but as soon as I get off this phone, I'm going to keep dialing. 
Okay, dial for dollars. <laughs> Jonathan Jackson, thank you so much. Best of luck to you in this very crowded field. Swim fast because it's a it's a real uh, short one. Good and luck to you, sir. Right. Everybody wants in, so I'm, I'm happy about it. Okay, best of luck. And we will see you all next week. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.